Chapter 12. Restoring Full Value If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the theft be certainly found in his hand alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Exodus 22, 1 and 4. In any attempted explanation of a Bible passage, we must have as our principle of interpretation the Bible's revelation of the theocentric nature of all existence. God created and now sustains all life. Thus, a sin against a person is first and foremost a sin against God. Restitution must always be made to God. God demands the death of the sinner as the only sufficient lawful restitution payment. But God allows a substitute payment, symbolized in the Old Testament economy by the sacrifice of animals. These symbols pointed forward in time to the death of Jesus Christ, which alone serves as the foundation of all of life. Hebrews 8. Jesus Christ made a temporary restitution payment to God in the name of mankind in general. Temporal life goes on, and a permanent one for his people, eternal life will come. Adam deserved death on the day he rebelled. God gave him extended life on earth because of the atonement of Christ. The same is true of Adam's biological heirs. We live because of Christ's atonement and only because of it. Crimes can also be against men. This means that restitution must be made to the victim and not just to God. There is no forgiveness apart from restitution. Christ's primarily and the criminal's secondarily. As images of God, victims are entitled to restitution payments from criminals. Since crimes differ in terms of their impact on victims, penalties also vary. The biblical principle is a familiar one in Western jurisprudence. The punishment must fit the crime. Since economic restitution is the form that punishment must take in the case of theft, economic restitution must therefore fit the crime. It must fit the crime in at least three ways. First, by restoring to the victim as closely as possible the value of what had been stolen. Second, by compensating the victim for his suffering in losing the item or items. And third, by compensating the victim for the costs of detecting the thief. Costs of Retraining The Traditional Explanation R.J. Rushduni's discussion of multiple penalties, which he calls multiple restitution, is important for the light it sheds on the first aspect of restitution, the payment necessary to compensate the victim for the loss he suffered as a result of the theft. Unfortunately, Rushduni follows rabbinical tradition and introduces an extraneous issue which confuses the discussion, namely, the use value of the animals. He writes, quote, Multiple restitution rests on the principle of justice. Sheep are capable of a high rate of reproduction and have use not only as meat, but also by means of their wool for clothing as well as other uses. To steal a sheep is to steal the present and future value of a man's property. The ox requires a higher rate of restitution, fivefold, because the ox was trained to pull carts and to plow, and was used for a variety of farm tasks. The ox, therefore, had not only the value of its meat and its usefulness, but also the value of its training, in that training an ox for work was a task requiring time and skill. It thus commanded a higher rate of restitution. Clearly, a principle of restitution is in evidence here. Restitution must calculate not only the present and future value of a thing stolen, but also the specialized skills involved in its replacement. End quote. Walter Kaiser agrees. The Jewish scholar, Kasuto, 
argues along similar lines, quote, He shall pay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep, less for a sheep than for an ox, possibly because the rearing of a sheep does not require so much or so prolonged effort as the rearing of herds, end quote. In fact, this interpretation is quite traditional among Jewish scholars. This interpretation seems to get support from the laws of at least one nation contemporary with ancient Israel. The Hittites also imposed varying penalties according to which animal had been stolen. Anyone who stole a bull and changed its brand, if discovered, had to repay the owner with seven head of cattle, two three-year-olds, three yearlings, and two weanlings. A cow received a five-fold restitution payment. The same penalty was imposed on thieves of stallions and rams. A plow ox required a tenfold restitution, previously fifteen. The same was true of a draft horse. Thus, it appears that trained work animals were evaluated as being worth more to replace than the others. Anyone who recovered a stolen horse, mule, or donkey was to receive an additional animal, double restitution. The original animal that had received training was returned. Thus, the thief did not have to pay multiple restitution. It seems reasonable to conclude that the Bible's higher payment for a sheep or ox is based on the costs of retraining an equivalent animal. But what seems reasonable at first glance turns out to be mistaken. Discounted Future Value and Capitalization We need to consider carefully the argument that the higher restitution penalty is related to the increased difficulty of training domestic animals. No doubt it is true that the owner must go to considerable effort to retrain a work animal. But is a sheep a work animal? Does it need training? Obviously not. This should warn us against adopting such an argument regarding any restitution payment that is greater than twofold. It is quite true that the future value of any stolen asset must be paid to the victim by the thief. What is not generally understood by non-economists is that the present market price of an asset already includes its expected future value. Modern price theory teaches that the present price of any scarce economic resource reflects the estimated future value of the asset's net output, net stream of income, or net rents. Discounted by the market rate of interest for the time period that corresponds to the expected productive life of the asset. For example, if I expect a piece of land to produce a net economic return, rent, equivalent to one ounce of gold per year for a thousand years, I would be foolish to pay a thousand ounces of gold for it today. The present value to me of my thousandth ounce of gold is vastly higher than the present value to me of a thousandth ounce of gold a thousand and one years in the future. When offering to buy the land, I therefore discount that expected income stream of gold by the longest term interest rate on the market. So do all my potential competitors, other buyers. The cash payment for the land will therefore be substantially less than the expected rental payments of 1,000 ounces of gold. This discounting process is called capitalization. When we capitalize something, we pay a cash price, an actual transaction or an imputed estimation for a future stream of income. Capitalization stems from the fact, as Rothbard argues, that, quote, rents from any durable good accrue at different points in time, at different dates in the future. The capital value of any good then becomes the sum of its expected future rents, discounted by the rate of time preference for present over future goods, which is the rate of interest. In short, the capital value of a good is the capitalization of its future rents in accordance with the rate of time preference or interest. End quote. 
This is not a difficult concept to grasp, unfortunately for human freedom and productivity. Very few people have ever heard about it. This process of capitalization means that the higher the prevailing interest rate, the smaller the cash payment that a buyer will offer for a piece of land today. The buyer applies a higher discount to its expected stream of income. Always bear in mind, however, that no one knows for certain that the, what the future value of an asset's output will be, nor does anyone know precisely how much the interest rate will fluctuate over the expected productive life of the asset. Obviously, no one is sure just what the productive life of any asset will be. Market forecasting involves a great deal of uncertainty. What is most important to understand at this point is that this discounting process applies to all capital goods, including durable consumer goods, in the market. It is not simply the product of a money economy. Monetary exchanges are as bound by the process of discounting expected future income, rents, as are all other transactions. Put a different way, the phenomenon of interest is basic to human action. It is not the product of a money economy. Uncertainty is the origin of what some economists call entrepreneurial or pure profit. When the estimates of the various competing entrepreneurs, market, forecasters, investors, are brought to bear in the capital goods markets, the outcome is a price for any capital asset. Today's demand is a composite of demand for present use, shear, kill, and eat a sheep today, and future use, shear a sheep repeatedly over several years and then kill and eat it. Today's price is the product of the competitive interaction between today's demand, which includes an estimation of future demand, and an estimation of future supply, and today's supply. In short, the present price of any scarce economic resource already includes its expected future price, discounted by the applicable period's market rate of interest. The Economics of Restitution Having said this, we now consider the economics of restitution. The task of the judges in estimating a morally legitimate restitution payment is easier than it seems. Judges can safely ignore the question of just how much the future value of a stolen asset might be. The best experts in forecasting economic value, entrepreneurs, have already provided this information to the judges, all nicely discounted by the market rate of interest. The judges need only use existing market prices in order to compute restitution payments. A restitution payment is normally twice the prevailing market price of the asset. When the stolen ox is returned by the authorities to the owner, the thief neither slaughtered it nor sold it. The thief pays double restitution. If the theft be certainly found in the hands alive, whether it be ox or ass or sheep, he shall restore double. Exodus 22.4 Rush Dooney follows the traditional rabbinical interpretation when he argues that this 100% penalty above the market price is the minimum amount by which the thief expected to profit from his action. The thief must return the original beast plus his expected minimum profit from the transaction, namely, the market value of the stolen beast. He forfeits that which he had expected to gain. Maimonides wrote of the requirement that the thief pay double. Quote, he thus loses an amount equal to that of which he wished to deprive another. Akadat Yizhak concurs. Quote, the thief is treated differently from the one who causes damage. The latter who caused damage through his ox or pit did not intend to deprive his fellow of anything. He is therefore only required to make half or total restitution. The thief, who deliberately sets out to inflict loss on his fellow, deserves to have a taste of his own medicine, to lose the same amount that he deprived his fellow of. This can only be achieved through double restitution. End quote. This is analogous to the perjurer, who is subject to the judicial penalty which his lie 
had it been believed by the judges, would have imposed on the innocent person. Deuteronomy 19, 16-21 Victim's Rights If a man shall steal an ox, or a sheep, and kill it, or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox, and four sheep for a sheep. Exodus 22, 1 What if a stolen sheep or ox had been sold by the thief? The thief may know where the animal is. If the authorities convict him of the crime, would he be given an opportunity to buy back the stolen animal and return it to the owner, plus the 100% penalty, and thereby avoid the fourfold or fivefold restitution penalty? This would seem to violate the third goal of proportional restitution. See pages 230 through 31. Increasing the risk for thieves who steal sheep or oxen, and who then dispose of the evidence by destroying them or selling them, thereby making it more difficult to convict them in court. The thief would still have to pay the fourfold or fivefold penalty, unless the victim decides otherwise. The fundamental judicial principle here is victim's rights. The victim decides the penalty up to the limits of the law. The victimized original owner should always have the authority to offer the convicted criminal an alternative, which is more to the victim's liking. Perhaps he is emotionally attached to the missing ox, especially if he personally trained it. He may even be attached emotionally to the stolen sheep, less likely, I suspect, than an attachment to an ox that he had personally trained. What if he offers to accept double restitution if, one, the criminal will tell him where the sold beast is, and two, the beast is returned to him alive? What if the thief then tells the victim and the civil authorities where the missing beast is? The authorities would then compel the new owner, who, legally speaking, is not truly an owner, as we shall see, to return the animal to the original owner. The buyer of the stolen beast now has neither beast nor the forfeited purchase price. He has become the thief's victim. The thief, therefore, owes him some sort of restitution payment. The question is, how much? This is a difficult question to answer. It would be either a 20% penalty or a 100% penalty. I believe that it is a 20% penalty. Timely confession receives its appropriate reward. Here is my reasoning. Say that the convicted thief confesses his crime of having either sold or slaughtered the stolen beast. The court is not sure which he did, but the penalty is the same in either case, fourfold sheep or fivefold oxen restitution. In an attempt to persuade the original owner to accept the return of his animal, plus a 100% penalty, he now confesses that he sold it. Say that the owner agrees to accept twofold restitution if the thief can get the animal back. The thief must now return the stolen beast. He goes to the buyer and tells him that the animal was stolen and must be returned to the original owner. He now also owes the victimized buyer the purchase price of the beast, plus a penalty of 20%. Leviticus 6, 2-5 If the initial buyer has already sold the beast, then it is the responsibility of the thief, not the buyer, to trace down its present location. The person who has final possession, when the state intervenes and requires him to return it to its original owner, is the defrauded buyer to whom the thief owes the restitution payment, because the bundle of rights associated with legal ownership could not be transferred by the thief to the various buyers. The final buyer has no legal claim on the animal. He is in receipt of stolen goods. By cooperating with the original victim, the thief may be able to reduce his overall liability. Instead of paying the original owner fivefold restitution for an ox, he now pays less. First, the stolen beast is returned to the true owner, basic restitution. Second, the thief then must pay that person the equivalent value of the beast. Third, he also owes the defrauded purchaser the return of his purchase price plus a penalty of 20%. 
Thus, he pays 3.2 fold restitution plus the cost of locating and transporting the beast, rather than 5 fold or 4 fold restitution. Obviously, the thief is better off if he cooperates with the true owner and tells him who bought the stolen ox or sheep from him. Why assume that the thief only owes the victimized buyer 20%? Because biblical law recognizes that thieves have better information about what they did than other people do. It is best for the law to offer thieves a reduced penalty for confession in order to elicit better information from them before the costs of the trial must be borne. To encourage the criminal to tell the truth, there has to be a threat hanging over him. The possibility that someone with the missing information will come to the judges and present it. Thus, if the thief remains silent about the person who bought the sheep or ox, he bears greater risk. The Silent Thief A silent thief faces an additional threat. Assume that the original owner demands fourfold sheep or fivefold ox restitution. Still, the thief says nothing because he knows that if he admits that he sold the beast, he will also have to pay the victimized buyer 120%. Yet the original owner may nevertheless refuse to deal with him and may demand, as his legal right, either fourfold or fivefold restitution. Once the thief has sold a stolen sheep or ox, the victim can legally demand the higher penalty payment. The victim is owed the fourfold or fivefold restitution, whether or not the thief locates the stolen beast, buys it back, and returns it to its original owner. The very act of selling a stolen ox or sheep invokes the law's full penalty. It is very much like the crime of kidnapping. The family of the kidnapped victim or the judge or the jury can legally insist on the death penalty, even if the kidnapper offers to identify the person to whom the victim had been sold into bondage. Why would the thief remain silent about the whereabouts of the stolen animal? One reason might be his fear of, of revenge from an accomplice in the crime. Laying this motivation aside, let us consider other possible motivations for the thief's remaining silent. First and foremost, the thief may believe that he will not be convicted of the crime. After all, the beast is missing. It is not in the thief's possession. Second, he may believe that the victim is hard-hearted and will insist on the maximum restitution payment even if the thief can get the beast back by identifying the defrauded buyer and paying him the purchase price plus a penalty payment of 20%. He remains silent. He may be convicted anyway. If so, he now faces a new problem. He not only owes fourfold or fivefold restitution to the victim, he could also wind up owing the victimized buyer whatever the buyer paid him for the stolen animal. Why? because the victimized buyer may later discover that he has purchased a stolen beast. If he then remains silent, he breaks the law. He is a recipient of stolen goods. He has become an accomplice of the thief. His silence condemns him. Additionally, he may feel guilty because he is not its legal owner. How can the defrauded buyer escape these burdens? He can go to the original owner who has already received full restitution from the thief or from the person who has purchased the thief as a slave and offer to sell the animal back to him. Once the victimized buyer identifies himself, the thief now owes restitution to the defrauded buyer, double restitution minus the purchase price that the defrauded buyer receives from the original owner. The thief has stolen from the buyer through fraud. As is the case with any other victim of unconfessed theft, the defrauded buyer is entitled to double restitution from the thief. Therefore, as soon as the thief gets through paying his debt to the original owner, he then must pay the victimized buyer the penalty payment. If the original owner declines to buy the beast, the buyer becomes its legal owner. The original owner does not want it back. He has also been paid restitution from the thief. But the defrauded buyer remains a victim. He keeps the beast, 
but he is also entitled to restitution from the thief equal to the original purchase price charged by the thief. If the thief confesses before the trial, he can avoid the risk of the extra payment to the defrauded buyer. Even if the victim demands fourfold or fivefold restitution by paying it, the thief thereby becomes the owner of the beast. The criminal's act of timely confession, plus his agreement to pay full restitution to the victim, atones judicially for the theft. But what about the defrauding of the buyer? I think the confessed thief would owe the buyer a restitution payment of 20% of the purchase price because he had involved the buyer in an illegal transaction. Having repaid both owner and buyer, he has legitimized the new ownership agreement. The buyer has gained full legal title to the animal plus restitution, so he is no longer a defrauded buyer. He now has no additional complaint against the thief. He cannot demand any additional restitution payments. Without confession and restitution, the thief would owe the buyer at least 100% restitution if discovered, which is an important economic incentive in getting the buyer to identify himself. Thus, the thief's silence at the trial regarding the existence of a defrauded buyer hangs over him continually. Let us assume that he is convicted. He pays his maximum restitution to the victim. He still has an economic incentive to confess. He tells the judges that he had sold the animal. He tells them who the defrauded buyer is. He now owes the defrauded buyer the 20% restitution payment. This is better than paying the defrauded buyer 100%, or twofold restitution minus any repurchase price from the original owner. Should the buyer learn that the beast was stolen property and decide to confess to the original owner or the judges? Biblical law puts a premium on timely confession. The criminal who confesses receives a lighter penalty than the criminal who refuses to confess and who is then subsequently convicted. There is an economic incentive for him to confess. There is also an economic threat if he refuses to confess. The possibility of twofold restitution provides an incentive for a defrauded buyer to reveal the existence of the stolen animal to the original owner. The Bible's penalty structure for theft provides economic incentives for all parties to present accurate information to the civil authorities. The Bible recognizes that accurate information is not a zero-price resource. Considering an Alternative Arrangement If there were no risk to the thief attached to remaining silent, what would be the thief's incentive to tell the owner that he knows what the stolen beast is? Assume that the thief owes no mandatory penalty payment to the defrauded buyer once he has paid restitution to the victim. He pays full restitution to the owner, and the defrauded buyer then hears about this, realizes that he has purchased stolen property and comes to the owner. He offers to sell back the missing beast to the owner at the market price, the beast was worth to the owner when the beast was stolen, presumably the price he paid to the thief. If the thief owes nothing to the defrauded buyer, he is still out only five-fold restitution by having concealed evidence. What is wrong with this interpretation of the restitution statutes? Answer. The thief has entangled the buyer in an illegal transaction that is inherently filled with uncertainty for the buyer. The latter might have been convicted of being a fence, a professional receiver of stolen goods, he has therefore been defrauded by the thief. He deserves restitution. What if the original owner says that he does not want to buy the beast from the defrauded buyer? The buyer has now, in effect, purchased the beast from its rightful owner. He now owns the bundle of rights associated with the true ownership. The thief has nevertheless exposed him to the discomfort of being involved in an illegal transaction. Shouldn't the thief still owe the seller a 100% restitution payment? My assessment of the principle of victims' rights leads me to conclude that biblical law 
does in principle allow the defrauded buyer to come to the judges and have them compel the thief to pay him 100% of the price he had paid the thief. This has nothing to do with whether he has sold the beast to the original owner or whether the owner has allowed him to retain legal possession of it. Transferring Lawful Title Why must we regard the sale of the animal as fraudulent? Why can the authorities legitimately demand that the purchaser return the animal to the original owner? Because the thief implicitly and possibly explicitly pretended to be transferring an asset that he did not possess, lawful title. The thief did not possess lawful title to the property. This illuminates a fundamental principle of biblical ownership. Whatever someone does not legally own, he cannot legally sell. Ownership is not simply possession of a thing. It is possession of certain legal immunities associated with the thing. It involves, above all, the right to exclude. Writes economist legal theorist Richard Posner, quote, A property right, in both law and economics, is a right to exclude everyone else from the use of some scarce resource, end quote. This right to exclude was never owned by the thief. Therefore, he cannot transfer this bundle of legal immunities to the purchaser. The purchaser can legally demand compensation from the thief, but he does not lawfully own the stolen item. The civil authorities can legitimately compel the buyer to transfer the property back to the thief, who then returns it to the original owner, or else compel him to return it directly to the original owner. The explicit language of the kidnapping statute provides us with the legal foundation of this conclusion regarding the transfer of ownership. And he that stealeth a man, and selleth him, or if he be found in his hand, he shall surely be put to death. Exodus 21.16 Even to have a stolen man in your possession was a capital crime, unless you could prove that you did not know that he or she was stolen. Just because a kidnapper sold you a stolen person as a slave did not mean that this person would remain in your possession as a slave. The same is true of other property. English common law does not recognize this biblical standard. Receiving stolen goods was not made a crime by statute until the 19th century. Common law had recognized no such crime. It took statute law to make it a crime. While it is no doubt true that it is expensive to research every title before making a purpose, especially in a pre-modern society, the responsibility to do so is biblically inescapable if the buyer wishes to reduce his risk of purchasing stolen goods, goods that must be returned to the original owner. Not only is the childhood chant of finders keepers, losers weepers, not biblical, neither is common laws, buyers keepers, victims weepers. A far better rule is the traditional caveat emptor, let the buyer beware. Conclusion The traditional explanation of the fourfold penalty for slaughtering or selling a stolen sheep and the fivefold penalty for oxen is based on future costs of retraining the replacement animals. We have already seen that this economic distinction among stolen animals is incorrect. The basis of the distinction of penalties is symbolism not economics. In any case, the free market price already contains the extra future costs associated with any item. Prices are set by consumer demand in relation to supply. Added costs, of course, restrict the supply. But this is already discounted in the existing market price. Thus, judges do not need to take into consideration extra future costs of replacement. All they need to do is use the existing market price of any stolen asset as the base price. Double or more restitution is then added to it. The victim always has the option of making a more acceptable offer to the criminal 
in order to gain the latter's cooperation. If he wants the return of the original animal or object, he may try to get the thief to agree by offering him a reduced compensation plan if he tells where he sold the stolen item. The buyer will have to return it to the original owner, of course, since the former did not actually receive the rights of ownership when he purchased a stolen item. The thief will then owe the buyer restitution, but this may be lower than what he would owe if he did not cooperate. The point is, the victim sets the penalty, so long as it is not higher than that which God allows in his law. The modern state acknowledges the validity of this principle of bargaining. Pre-trial plea bargaining, reduced sentences for testifying against accomplices, and other deals are made between prosecutors and criminals. The problem is, these negotiated deals are all too often made without the consent of the victims, whose interests are being sacrificed to the career plans of the criminals and the bureaucrats who control the criminal justice system. The Bible teaches that it is always the victim, not the state, whose rights are to be upheld by civil law. He is the one to negotiate any settlement with the criminal, not the state.